This is Purple Radio On Demand. The Purple Radio Arts Show. Hi everyone, you're listening to Purple's Weekly Arts Show. I'm Lim. The arts show covers arts and culture events at the university, including interviews with fellow student artists and reviews of events within and beyond Durham. Today we've got an interview with Esalen Gates and Eleanor Storey from Durham University Classical Theatre. They will be sharing about what the company has been up to, as well as how they have been approaching theatre during lockdown. Yeah, so uh, would you like to introduce yourselves, like your names and the roles that you have on, on the exec? Uh, I'm Esalan Gates and I'm president of Duct. Um, I'm Eleanor Story and I'm treasurer. Very nice. So could you tell us a bit about what Duct is about? Um, well, Duct stands for Durham University Classical Theatre and we're committed to putting on any theatre that was written or set over 100 years ago. But we are like a little bit flexible with the 1920s period. Okay, so um, do you consider what classical theatre is by the time period in which it's set in? Yeah, um, because obviously classical theatre makes people think about kind of like Greek plays. But yeah, our definition is plays written or set over 100 years ago. So they can be written in like the 1980s, for example, but as long as it's set pre-1920, we'll, we'll put them on. Okay, so that's pretty broad. Um, would you like to share a bit about what you have done this time so far? So um, this term we've done the classical acting showcase, which went really well. Um, and we had, it was a really good opportunity for people to show off their classical acting skills and um, use the assembly rooms, which was really nice. Um, yeah, and it went really well. Um, it was different from previous years, though, because um, it, A, it wasn't live. Um, so everything was recorded and then judges weren't live as well. Um, but, but, but actually, it still was just as good because you still got that kind of intense experience that you get with the showcase and monologues because of the way with the camera worked and stuff. But yeah, that was really good. Yeah, sounds really cool. Um, do you think it was sort of different because it's sort of recorded by a camera this time, like compared to um, showcases in the previous years, for example? It meant that it was more efficient, actually, I think, in a lot of ways, because um, we didn't have to like move set and stuff off stage so we could allow um performers to do two monologues instead of just one so we asked everyone to do two contrasting monologues um one of them did like antigone and lancelot gobbo from merchant of venice so like gives them opportunity as well to show like their full range instead of just doing one piece which was really cool um and that we wouldn't have done that um if it wasn't filmed so that's a really cool thing that happened because of that um and we were really lucky actually that our assembly room slot was the monday before the second lockdown kicked in um, so we're really grateful for that as well. Yeah, yeah. It sounds really nice that they, they get to show more range, even though, I mean, because it's filmed. And I guess, like, the judges can access it from, like, wherever they are because, um, yeah, because they can do it remotely. Um, so have your plans for this year changed somewhat because of, like, the COVID-19 restrictions? I mean, everyone has to play it by ear at the moment, I think. Um, not just this term, but also, like, considering our plans for the whole year. Um... Because COVID guidelines can change basically at any moment. Um, and each time they change, it can mean something different for theatre. So I think what we're focusing on as a company is like making sure that we're continuing to be creative in whatever form the current guidelines allow. So like putting on a radio play um, in the final week of term or doing um, the classical writing competition because it means that... Because writing is something that you can do from home and still be safe. 
So it's a way of inspiring students without like breaching any gu- guidelines. So going into your role, like go- joining like the exec, did you imagine that it would be this way or sort of have you had to adjust um, your expectations along the way? Well, I mean, I'm treasurer, so I sort of, I my role hasn't changed that much because I'm still sitting in front of spreadsheets and budgets and like, um, and um, accounts and things. So mine hasn't changed that much, but um, I think things like um, thinking about how much money we need for productions and knowing that audience sales are going to be, you know, it's going to be really difficult to predict how many people will turn up to various events. So that's definitely been a change. Um, but I think this is probably a really good question for Eslin because she's the boss man. So. Um, I think just the process of like planning um, this year has just required like a lot of open mindedness and flexibility. Um, so you just have to be willing to constantly adapt um, because like I think every time the lockdown or the guidelines change, everyone in theatre's hearts break like a little bit. And so it's like getting over that first hurdle is probably like the biggest challenge. Um, but once you get past that, past that, you have to kind of um, be simultaneously creative and like expand your ideas um, because they are more restricted, if that makes sense. Um, but also think really practically about everything, um, like making sure that you have understudies for all of your casts because any of them could have to self-isolate at any moment. And just like keeping that within your plans at, like at all times, basically. Yeah. And it sounds like you've adapted really well with like the radio play and also with the classical writing competition. So maybe you can talk a bit more about um, the radio play first. Um, is it they met on Good Friday? So it's set a year after the Vikings' uh, successful invasion of England, uh, like when they just when they plan to take Ireland. And it's about like old rivalries um, and the testing of loyalties as they prepare to meet on Good Friday. Um, and there's a good bit of like magic and legend in there as well. Sounds really cool. H- how did you choose to put this on? Um, so we were hoping to donate a portion of the profits um, of the show to the County Durham base of Age UK um, to help elderly people who are alone this Christmas, because of course this year it's going to be especially difficult. And the reason that relates to Good Friday is because it's about like snow and kind of like at a time of year that's quite cold. And so we thought it was a really good way of kind of um, connecting those two things. And also it's a really exciting deviation from the kind of typical classical play. Um, because I don't think Duct has done like a Norse play like this before. So we thought it was like a new and exciting thing during lockdown um, when we have to think outside the box. Yeah, that's a really good cause as well. Is this your first time um, putting on a radio play or being involved in one? Uh, it is for me and I think it is for the company. But the prod team, I think, have all worked in different aspects on other radio plays, I think. Yeah, we've got... Um... Izzy, who did um, Marley Stones, um, sort of the the first radio play, um, but yeah, no, and it's it's going to be really good, and like I'm in it, and I we just had a read through on Monday, um, and it went really well, and there's a good mix of freshers getting involved, and also second and third years, which is really nice because some of the freshers haven't had a chance this year with theatre so far. Yeah, it's nice to get the chance to at least like meet more people during this time. So how have you found like the rehearsal process? Um, it's been fine. It's all been over Zoom, which has been very strange because it's almost it's so much nicer doing it in person. But um, having said that, it was actually really, really quite fun. Um, and we've all, you know, it was just it was fun just to bring new people together um, and work on something new. Yeah, it was a good lot of fun. Yeah, sounds fun. Um, do you find it harder to like bond with your your cast? Um, through Zoom? 
Because, like, we're all not used to talking to people on Zoom, I feel. At least I'm not. Yeah, I think in some ways it's quite nice because I know a few people in the cast already. Um, So I think because we know each other and we joke around, it makes everyone else feel a lot more relaxed and stuff, um, which is nice. Um, But I, I suppose it's like anything. It's like when you start a new production, you get used to each other and then you like and then by the end of it, you're all like happy as Larry, which is quite nice. <laughs> um, So, yeah. So how do you feel like this process is different from like past plays you've done? Because obviously both of you have done a lot of plays in the past. Um, How, how are you adjusting to this new way of doing theatre? I mean, you just have to think about different things um, and you get used to thinking about different things, I think, by this point. Um, but with just COVID in general, obviously publicity is totally different because you can't put up posters in colleges or around university buildings. So you've got to think about publicity in a totally different way. Um, like social media is crucial. It's always been crucial, to be honest, but like it's even more so now. Um, and also specifically with like a radio play, um, there's like different roles involved. So instead of a tech director, you have a sound editor, that kind of thing. Um, but I think we're all kind of used to the COVID rules now just because we had to get used to them really quickly. Um, and we have to read a lot of the guidelines constantly because they're changing so often. And so we're like used to the specificity, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's really amazing like, how much people have to do to like change and adapt in, in, short, in a short amount of time. And it's quite, it's quite nice really to see like what different companies have managed to do in this time because there's still a lot going on even though it's so hard to make theatre in this time. Is there anything that you find like most challenging about about the process of organizing um, during this time? I mean, it's, there's something about like the current situation that forces you to be just much more expansive and creative with your ideas. Um, so that's good, and it makes us all think like a bit more broadly about what we can achieve, um, how we can make this year of theater just more exciting. Um, but I do think that we all feel a bit of heartbreak every time the guidelines change, and it does affect. You have to have a lot of resilience. Mm and grit yeah keep up a positive attitude stay resilient stay open to new ideas um so focus on that instead of the heartbreak <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think like each time so if you have to make adjustments to do a show or like the show is postponed or like it's cancelled it's it's just always really demoralizing for people involved um especially for something like theater where you spend so much time like rehearsing and then do not see it on like a physical stage i think that, that's so hard to, to deal with so like really like Good job, you guys. Um, <laughs> um, is there any aspect that you find most exciting? Because clearly you've done a lot to adapt to this time. Do you think it has like new possibilities or things? It allows you to do things that you've not done before, maybe. And the filming aspect's really exciting. Um, like the tech they've got in the assembly rooms now is really exciting. Um, and I think we're all getting more used to it. Um, because I remember doing the class collecting showcase was uh, interesting, using the cameras for the first time. But it was also like really exciting to be able to use that technology because I would never have been able to otherwise. And so that's something that I think, you know, is a good thing about this situation. It definitely gave, like, the it another kind of level of professionalism. You felt like, you know, obviously we all love student theatre, but it is student theatre. But then when you add all this amazing technology and, and you know, it, the assembly rooms as a whole as a venue is very, like, professional but then once you've got the camera in as well it's like oh my gosh wow things are getting serious which is really really quite cool yeah I think having like nice equipment to work with that's that really like opens up something new so like from a treasurer point of view um do you think like sort of the finances this year has been different because I feel like without 
having physical place, would that affect like the company's revenue? Does it affect um some of your considerations? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's slightly um, nerve-wracking writing budgets when you're like, well, I predict this will be our income, but honestly, it's anyone's guess. <laughs> but um, that's quite nerve-wracking. But again, with anything, you know, you just adapt and then, you know, you get, keep it going. But I think it's definitely something to think about, but like, it's not going to stop us putting stuff on, obviously. But it's just one more thing we have to think, right, better consider this. So so when is um They Met on Good Friday coming out and, and how can people um watch it? I mean, listen to it. So it'll be available between the 11th and 13th of December. So like right at the end of the term. Um, and there'll be a link on the DST website where all ticket links are um, to a SoundCloud link. And then it'll just be available for those three days. It's great. Look forward to hearing it. Um, maybe you can talk a bit more about the classical writing competition. Um, so what is this competition about? Uh, it's a new student writing competition where we're basically asking students to submit either adaptations of classical texts or original writing that is set over 100 years ago. Um, and we're committing to putting one of those on as a live or film production, depending on guidelines, um, and one in the format of a radio play. Nice. Because this is not something I've really heard of in DST so far, so how did you come up with this idea? Well, I think we thought instead of trying to make something as close as possible to previous years, um, we thought, like, let's use these abnormal circumstances to kind of broaden what we do in DST, I suppose. So, like, writing is something that you can do regardless of COVID guidelines. And so we decided that we would rather make something totally different and, like, exciting rather than something that's just inferior to previous years. Because um, I think inspiring students, even when the guidelines make the situation look quite bleak, is really important. Yeah. I think it's a really good idea, especially because everyone's stuck at home. Like, there's a lot more time to write as well. So, like, it seems like just the right time and opportunity to, to push this out. Um, so, what kind of submissions would you be looking for for, for the competition? Anything set over 100 years ago that's original writing or an adaptation, basically. Okay. Um, has Doc actually put on student writing or adaptations in the past? Not recently, I don't think. Um... I don't think they... Go on. Sorry. <laughs> it's difficult with this Zoom stuff, isn't it? Um, no, I, we haven't done any of this sort of thing before, so it should be really fun. That's all I was going to say. Um, yeah. No, I've got nothing, <laughs> got nothing to add to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's, is this something that you're looking to develop in the long term that you're like interested in, or, or is it something that's sort of like um, created out of lockdown circumstances? It's definitely partially creative out of lockdown circumstances, but it's also something I would really like to become a duck staple because it creates like more opportunities for students interested in writing. Um, and it also like opens up what classical theatre really means because often like classical plays are very much centred around sort of straight white male storylines often. Um, so I'd really like this to push classical theatre to become just more diverse in every sense of the word, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely like, broadens classical theatre a lot at least by what I thought it was because when you have like student writing I, I wouldn't really associate student writing or like original writing with classical theatre which is something like that sounds a bit more distant from from us now but the fact that you are encouraging this I think it's, it's just really um exciting and really innovative and and yeah just look forward to seeing what people write about um yeah so 
uh, if you don't mind, we can talk a bit more about like COVID-19 or lockdown, how lockdown life has been for you in general. How how have you found life or like <laughs> maybe like how have you found like um doing theatre in general during this time? Um, I think it's been very different and very tough, um, especially because theatre as a whole, it does take up an awful lot of time as it if, if you do it and then to suddenly not really have much going on it's been sort of like oh what am I meant to do with my time I know I've got my degree but like you know <laughs> um, so I think that's been the main thing for me I've just been I've missed doing it and going to rehearsals and you know working meeting new people and working on projects um but I think the nice thing is is that everyone in DST all theatre companies were all in the same boat so it's not as if well, some theatre companies can get away with it and others can't. So we're all sort of struggling together, which is kind of nice. Um, obviously not an ideal situation, but there we go. <laughs> you just try and born in like your misery. No, I'm just kidding. But like, <laughs> but like, yeah, I guess it's something that we all have to work on to, to adapt to. So in a way, we're all in this together. Um, yeah. So I was just going to say like, because... Um, we've talked about how like demoralizing it is to sort of do theater in this time and how you have to keep dealing with changes. What what sort of motivates you or what helps you get through um these times? Good question. <laughs> um, I think um so lockdown started with my production of Macbeth getting well, cancelled slash indefinitely postponed. Um. And we're now looking at doing like a film of it in the countryside around Durham next term. Um, so that is something that's keeping me going because um, I put like a lot of time and effort into Macbeth in March. And obviously that um, kind of went to waste. And I had to like, thinking about film now, I have to completely like revise my creative vision. But now I'm getting excited about using, you know, filming, about changing it up, about, um, you know, creating a film, which would be really exciting. So I think once you get past the... Um, the stage of feeling just demoralized you can move on to being creative about new things of revising old projects that kind of thing um which is kind of the the space i think we're all in now now that we're past kind of that first stage i think you've just got to take sort of each rehearsal and each opportunity as it comes and just see it as a sort of a really fun opportunity to do what you love whether you even whether you kind of get to performance level or stage or not you've just got to enjoy it for what it is I mean, it's sort of almost like doing loads and loads of auditions. You do the auditions because you, you like acting and you want to get into a show, but at the end of the day, you may not, and that's just something you have to live with, especially from, like, the actor's perspective and prod team. I imagine it's the same thing. So, but yeah. yeah. Do you think current restrictions has changed how you see theatre, especially now that there's a lot more, like, using the mediums of film or, like, doing it on radio? Um, has this changed for you? Something actually that's made me think about is how we think about um, space on stage, because obviously so actors have to socially distance on stage. And so the question is whether we direct actors to pretend there isn't two metres between them and just kind of try and make it naturalistic or whether we use that space as a means of triggering a new interpretation of a scene. Um, and so, like, I mean, I'm personally really interested in playing with the idea of how, like, if you can't move very much, how much that makes the smallest movement mean then. And how, how how you can like change what movement and gesture and proxemics actually mean um, when you can't move very much. Um, so I guess it's like using restrictions or or like the COVID guidelines 
um, as a means of actually like advancing our creativity in a weird way. Like you can expand because you're limited. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. Like, it also I think not just like sort of on stage, but also like the fact that when you use film, like it kind of zooms in on like smaller movements as well. So I guess in general, like there just seems to be a lot more emphasis on the smaller details, and. Yeah, I guess that could open up something new, but it could also mean that it shifts the way you think about physical space. Yeah, the idea of scale is just really interesting to me. I was just thinking about how, like, when we sort of walk on the streets, you know, we wear masks and stuff. Um, That means, like, because you can't see half of someone's face, like, the slightest expression you have to, like, guess from someone's eyes, or, like, if someone's smiling. Um, I don't know, that just reminded me, like, in general, like, not just in, in the arts, but, like, in daily life, it sort of, like, affects how we interact with other people as well. It makes you realise, like, how important, like, body language and stuff is in everyday life. Like, you can tell, sometimes I can tell so- it's someone, even if they've got a mask on in the back of their head because of the way they walk or, like, what they're wearing or something, which is quite funny. But, yeah, no, it definitely makes you think mm-hmm. about acting in a more sort of subtle, scaled-down way. But, yeah. As an actor, do you think that um this has changed how you act or... um? you just find different ways to express your, yourself? I think doing the auditions on Zoom has been a really interesting experience. Um, I think in some ways it's been quite good because it's really made you realise you have, you know, always go, do you, you give it your best shot because especially with Zoom, it's scaled back anyway because it's not in person. Um but yeah, it's just been like very new and very exciting and self-tapes have been quite interesting and possibly something that might continue is for people who can't attend auditions and things. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's cool. How have you found auditions actually now that you've mentioned that? Like, is it, do you find it harder to express yourself to on like Zoom or yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like the distance is a bit weird when, when it's between a screen I'm not sure how you feel about that yeah I think you're right I think w- when you're behind a kind of panel almost like it's it's definitely um a lot trickier to sometimes get like the subtleties and stuff you're definitely relying on I think your voice a lot more um because to come out with stuff rather than maybe you know facial expressions but you know it sounds quite funny like reanalyzing it but <laughs> um yeah if I mean Eslyn's the one who's been sitting through all the auditions I've been doing a handful Eslyn's been sitting through hours of them so that might be quite interesting to talk to you about because yeah I mean how do you differentiate people so how do you differentiate like loads of different ones on zoom um Oh, as you say, right, the, the facial expression thing is a weird one because everyone's got different video quality and audio quality, but very but video quality is the main one. Um, and so the difficulty is, when, like, deciding how much you have to take, like, video quality and stuff like that into consideration. That's something that's, like, been a weird one to think about. Um, and also, I think, just in general, people are less likely to throw themselves into an audition when it's on Zoom rather than in the audition space like if it's like like in person um so like I mean I've had people like scream and shout and cry in auditions in person and it was it's that that's just not the case uh with zoom auditions I think people are much more self-conscious um and so it's like trying to get past that first stage and like the bit where you introduce yourself and you try and do redirection um but yeah no I th- I, f- I yeah I much prefer in person auditions and I'm sure you guys like actors do as well Mm. 
I mean, it's quite yeah, convenient yeah. on Zoom, but it's not the same, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine, like, it's quite hard to, like, convey the atmosphere because, like, sort of when you watch people audition or, like, just when you watch actors in general, there's, like, different people have, like, different, like, qualities to them. But now you can't really feel that, I, I think. The worst thing is that it's so difficult to, like, perceive physicality, like, in any way. Um, because you just don't get a strong sense of it. Um, which is obviously something that's actually really important. Like, as we say, like, body language has become really important just in our everyday lives now. Um, and of course, it's even more important on a stage. And But if you can't glean it from an audition, I don't know what you do, to be honest. Like, you just have to kind of discount that as a part of your decision process. Yeah, it's weird. It's just not something that I think people have ever had to consider before now. Yeah. So how about, like, so personally, have you um, been accessing theatre during this time? Have you been watching anything in the last few months? I've watched a lot of the National Theatre productions, National Theatre Live stuff. Um, I love Frankenstein, the the one they did with, oh my god, Benedict Cumberbatch and... And um, Johnny... Johnny Lee Miller, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed the Midsummer Stream they did from British Theatre. That was fantastic. And watch, the way they used the space was really cool. And the way they switched the storyline up. Yeah, I, really, I think those were probably my two favourites. And obviously, DST has been streaming as many live productions as they can uh, this term. And I think that we're trying to say, like, every production, even post-COVID, should be filmed in some capacity. Um, which would be really cool for, like, just, like, not even um, for, like, uh, audiences and stuff, but also for, like, pro teams and cast to keep as, like, a memento, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's a great idea. Like, it would be nice to be able to watch past productions. Like a nice kind of archive. It'd be, I think that'd be really cool. Um, and if we get any bright, shining stars of DST, we could be like, oh, look, that was them and their production. It'd be quite cool. Yeah. You know, just makes you realise how much you need, need the arts and stuff, watching theatre and, and you know, television and stuff during lockdown. Um, but yeah, no. Okay, maybe we can talk more about like classical theatre because um like we said earlier, sort of by by Duck's definition, classical theatre is quite broad, especially now that you introduce like um student writing or like original writing to it. Is there any particular type of classical theatre that you enjoy the most personally? Whether it's like um I don't know, like the time period or, or the style of it or um, do you like certain kinds of characters or modern adaptations, for example? Because I feel like I've seen produ- productions by Duck that are sort of like across a wide range of, of different styles. Uh, I mean, I personally have a passion for exploring what classical theatre means for modern audiences. Um, I'm doing my dissertation on how we respond in the 21st century to Shakespearean leaders and tyrants, you know, on the stage and like, what like who or what does it make us think about and so I think that's the focus that I'm really interested in but what about you Ella? Um, I'm a bit of a I like all kinds I'm like I don't really have I don't have favorites <laughs> yeah no I really like I think that's the thing I love most about classical theatre actually like how initially you think maybe it's quite narrow and it's quite small but actually as a genre especially the way Dark has defined it it's so broad you know it's ranging from things like Journey's End um all the way back to sort of um Lysistrata and types um you know comedies tragedy tragedy comedies like it's got everything um and so yeah I've been really into that but I really like my my strong female characters but I also like the kind of conflicted male leads. So I'm definitely like, you know, 
I'm I'm really enthusiastic about this company in the genre. Um, wait. So do both of you do like English, like in terms of degree? Yeah. Sorry, I. I don't do English. I do anthropology and archaeology, so slightly slightly different, but. Because, like, um, as Lynn was talking about her, her this, I was, like, wondering whether you feel that um, what you do in DAP or DST in general has any relation to your degree or, like, is there any sort of link? I don't know. I think um, it's, like, there's two sides to it because, obviously, it helps doing an English degree and directing because you have, you've probably, you've read probably more plays, um, you have a better understanding, you can grasp it quicker I suppose and you've seen more productions but also um it means that you don't ever escape your degree (laughs) um and also I think it can be a hindrance because I I think if you approach a play that you're going to put on from a scholarly or academic perspective that's actually not super helpful because when an audience is sitting you know watching I don't know Twelfth Night they're not thinking about um the contemporary uh gender implications from the 17th century do you know what i mean um and so using it when it's helpful but also learning to let go of my degree when i'm actually like doing theater is yeah something that i've learned to do i think yeah i think like academic analysis is very different from seeing it and, and feeling it for sure um, do you guys think of like classical theatre in opposition to contemporary theatre or um, do you prefer one over the other? Oh, that's a tricky question. I think both have different strengths and different weaknesses, which is a very general, broad answer. So, <laughs> um, But I think, I think um, definitely from an actor's perspective, it's, I think classical acting is sort of your bread and butter. Um, I think a lot of actors um, who go on to do actually sort of contemporary stuff have been trained in classical acting. Um, So I think it's a really good foundation. But um, I think being skilled and enjoying both is really quite good. And I think it's I really enjoy doing both. Um, So from an actor's actor's perspective, I hate saying that, but (laughs) I mean, I love all theatre as long as it makes you feel something, I guess. Um, I do think that there is a difference in like when you're directing classical or contemporary um, because I think actors are a little bit scared sometimes of classical texts if they're not used to them or like especially like Shakespeare Um, so when I directed Twelfth Night it took a few goes for the actors to get really comfortable with the language and like understand the jokes you know Um, but once they understood they couldn't like get through any lines without laughing Um, So I think it's just like making sure they're comfortable with it, which is also something I think you need to do with contemporary um, texts because equally you just need to play with it and have fun with it because I actually think in the rehearsal process, when you're playing around with the text is when actually the best moments arise often um, in performance. So I think they're, they're more similar than I think people give them credit for. Right, you've both got in contemporary stuff, sometimes the amount of sort of angst coming from them is, is just ridiculous. But then you look at like Ham- all of Hamlet's monologue and it's like, it's, it's the exact same thing. <laughs> it's just it's just formulated differently. So Yeah, so there are definitely like similarities. It's just sort of sometimes expressed through a different style, I guess. Would Do you think that that means you approach them a bit differently? Like whether you're an actor or director or like in DST, do you... 
I don't know, it's the way you access um, classical theatre, like maybe the language of it different from how you do it with like contemporary. Yeah, for sure. Like I definitely like um, when I'm doing, you know, uh, classical acting, um, I feel like my voice always gets lower and everything is pronunciated better. And like I feel like my even my posture changes. Um, but when I'm doing contemporary, I can be a bit more sort of relaxed and I always I always end up mumbling a bit, which is a bit bad. But um, yeah, I definitely think you interpret them differently, but I think they're both just as fun as the other. I think, um, I mean, having said, like, bringing the fun of contemporary theatre into the, like, the kind of seriousness that people treat classical texts, I think equally um, with contemporary theatre, sometimes on a first read-through or, like, at the initial rehearsal stages... Um, People don't, or like actors, don't give the words as much weight, I suppose, as they would in like when they're doing classical um, plays. And so it's like remembering, oh no, everything does matter. Every word that you say does contain weight. It's just not in iambic pentameter. Leading on from that, like even in even in classical theatre, you know, when someone has put like a full stop or a pause, you know, it's really important. Whereas in contemporary theatre, you might dismiss that. But again, like you shouldn't because everything's there for a reason. Yeah, it does sound like sort of with classical theatre, there's a lot more like precision, especially because you spend so much time trying to understand it. Sometimes it may lead to better interpretations or like you pay more attention to it, I guess, like compared to language that you're sort of used to and familiar with. Yeah. Is there anything else you guys would like to talk about or like promote, publicise? I would just say get make sure to watch They Met on Good Friday because... Um, it's amazing. You get to hear so many good Irish accents, um, and um, definitely sign up for the classical writing competition. Yeah. Anything from you, Esalen? That's all I can think uh, of. Well, the deadline for the classical writing competition is the first of January, um, and the form with which you uh, submit your production application is on the weekly email. Um, so that's a bit of housekeeping. Yeah, so thank you so much for, for joining me for, for, the, for the arts show. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. I hope it was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for so having much. us. Yeah. Thanks again, Esalen and Eleanor, for joining us today. For today's show, it's just going to be me. I think it's that time of Tom when we are all struggling to find time. So we don't really have reviews for this week but I'll be sharing some songs and some thoughts that are vaguely related to the interview. Going on from how a lot of classical theatre is dominated by a certain demographic of male voices, the next song I'm playing is Marina's new song, Man's World. That was Man's World by Marina. One of my favourite things to do in terms of content is to read poetry, I just really like doing it. So next, I'm going to share a poem that explores what it means to be a female writer in a man's world. It's Sonnets Uncorseted by Maxine Cumin. Sonnets Uncorseted by Maxine Cumin. 1. She was 22. He was 53. A duke, a widower with 10 children. They met in Paris, each in exile from the English Civil War. Virginal and terrified, still she agreed to marry him. The women were mere chattel, spinsterhood made you invisible in the 1600s. Marriage was arranged, hers a rare exception. Despite a dowry, a woman never could own property. Your womb was just for rent, birth control contrivances, 
a paste of ants, cow dung mashed with honey, tree bark with pennyroyal. All too often failed the applicant. 2. If anything went wrong, you bled to death. You bore and bore and bore as you were taught, screaming sometimes for days in childbirth. To bring forth was a woman's fate, but not for Margaret Cavendish, childless Duchess of Newcastle. After the head of Charles I had been detached, and the restoration seated a new monarch, she and the duke returned to his estate when nothing discomposed the paradise. How rare! Two lovers scribbling away, admiring each other's words and privacy. He, polymath, equestrian, playwright. She, philosopher, fantasist, poet. 3. Here's the first book on the art of dressage. Till then, an untried, humane approach to teaching classic paces in the manege. The grace of the Lavard and the Pierre. Hers the goofy utopian fantasy, the blazing world. The heroine is adrift with a kidnapper in a wooden skiff. A storm comes up conveniently, and they are blown to the North Pole. He freezes to death, but she is carried to a contiguous North Pole. A new world where the emperor falls in love with her, makes her his empress and seats her all his powers over clans of wildly invented creatures. 4. Poems, plays, philosophical discourses on platonic love. A chapter on her birth, breeding and life, and an apology for writing so much upon this book about herself, even some inquiries into science. Years in chosen isolation, the Duchess filled with words, and the Duke with reassurance. Even this outburst did not discomfort him. Men are so unconscionable and cruel, they would fain bury us in their beds as in a grave. The truth is, we live like bats or owls, labour like bees and die like worms. Peeps caught her mad, conceited and ridiculous. 5. Virginia Woolf, in 1928, found her quixotic and high-spirited, as well as somewhat crack-brained and butt-witted, but went on to see her in a vein of authentic fire. Eighty-odd years on, flamboyant, eccentric, admittedly vain. Now she's a respected foremother among women of letters. Founded in 1997, the Margaret Cavendish Society, international, established to provide communication between scholars worldwide, is plumbed with long papers, confabs, dues. She's an aristocrat who advocates, words worn across centuries, for women's rights. 6. I went to college in the 1940s, read Gogol, Stendhal, Zola, Flaubert, read Pushkin, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and wrote exams that asked, contrast and compare. Male novelists, male profs, male tutors, not a single woman on the faculty, nor was there even found among the poets I read and loved. G.M. Hopkins, A.E. Hausman, Auden, Yeats, only Emily. Not quite decoded or yet in the canon. Ten years later, I struggled to break in the almost all-male enclave of poetry. Here's a small glimpse in the hierarchy. Famed Robert Lowell praising Marianne. 7. As the best woman poet in America, put down by Langston Hughes, bless his egalitarian soul, who rose at the dinner to pronounce her the best Negro woman poet in the nation. Terrified of writing domestic poems, poems pungent with motherhood anathema, it's the prevailing clique of male poobas. Somehow I balance teaching freshman comp half-time with kids, meals, pets, errands, spouse. I wrote in secret red drafts on the phone with another restless mother and sexton. And poco a poco, our poems filled up the house. Then one of us sold a poem to the New Yorker. A week later, 
the other was welcomed in Harper's. 8. But even as we published our first books, the visiting mailbots required care. We drove them to their readings far and near, thence to the airport just in time to make the flight to the next gate. You drive like a man, they said by way of praise, and if a poem of ours seemed worthy, they said, you write like a man. When asked what woman poet they read, with one voice they declaimed, Emily Dickinson. Saintly Emily safely dead. Modern women poets were dismissed as immature, their poems pink with the glisten of female organs. The virus of their disdain hung in the air, but women were now infected with ambition. 9. We didn't merely saunter decade by decade. We swept on past the Beauvoir and Friedan and took courage from Caroline Kaiser's knife blade pro femina. I will speak about women of letters, for I'm in the record, urging stand up and be hated and swear not to sleep with editors. If a woman is to write, Virginia Woolf has Mary Batten declare, she has to have 500 a year and a room with a lock on the door, a sacred space where Shakespeare's sister, Judith, might have equaled his prodigious gift, or not. She might have simply floated there, set loose in the privilege of privacy, herself unwritten, under no one else's eyes. 10. O oh, Duchess, come hurdle five centuries to a land of MFAs and poetry, of journals and print and even more online. Small presses popping up like grapes on vines, readings taking place in every cranny, prices for first books, some with money. Come to this apex of tenured women professors where sessions on gender and race fill whole semesters and students immerse themselves in women's studies. Meet famous poets who are also unabashed mothers or singletons by choice or same-sex partners. Black, Latina, Asian, Native American, white, Christian, Muslim, Jew and Atheist. Come join us, Duchess Margaret Cavendish. That was Sonnets Uncorseted by Maxine Cumin, and it's from Shakespeare's Sisters, Women Writers Bridge Five Centuries, and it was published by the Folger Shakespeare Library. So that was a Folger's program on women writers, and they brought out a chapbook on women writers over five centuries, and Cumin's work was commissioned for that. And she said that part of these Sonnets Uncorseted is about Ma Margaret Cavendish, but part of it is also about her own experience. I'm sorry, I kind of realised I made a number of mistakes in, in the poem. It's quite long. Um, so Margaret Cavendish, she lived in the 17th century. She was a prolific author. She published poems, plays, literary critiques, volumes of observations, and even some works on philosophy. And it is notable that she appears to have read widely on a range of topics that were more usually reserved for male scholars. And she was also unusual for publishing under her own name when most women authors at that time only wrote anonymously. So the poet Cumin also talks about her own experience in this poem. She kind of links her own experience to um, Cavendish's experiences. She went to college in the 40s during the Second World War. And she said that when she was a student, she never saw a single woman faculty member, not a woman instructor, not even a teaching assistant. All of the faculty were male. And at the time of writing this poem, she says that students today have no real concept of what the women's movement consisted of or how personal the struggle was. I think this poem is really interesting because it really challenges the form of the sonnet. Um, it starts with like couplets and then um, it stretches 
the flow of language across lines, even across different sonnets, like through different parts, one, two, three, four, five, till ten. But um, some of it stretches the same sort of flow of language through different parts, such that it seems to be free verse, which explains the title Sonnets Uncorseted, because it very much looks at what has constrained female expression and female achievement across the centuries, and breaks these rules while also exploring what female writers and poets can, can achieve. But there's still some sort of rhyming pattern going on. Um, it's I didn't really do like <laughs> a, a real like in-depth analysis, but just while reading it out, like it sounds interesting that there are still certain patterns and, and a bit of a structure to it. Um, and then when I was reading it aloud, I kind of wondered how I should pause and structure it because the lines kind of flow on a lot, but also you can't really ignore the way that it's laid out visually and structured on a page. Um, and I'm just quite used to reading poetry like in a very verbal way. Maybe it's just because I, I do more like spoken body, slam poetry-ish things. And I guess who reads it also gives it a very different feel, especially over the course of such a long poem. Um, I guess while reading it, it's sort of like a, a second interpretation of it, which which people may not agree with, um, may not have done justice to the poem, but yeah. Um, I think that sort of the flow between the, the different sonnets means that none of these sonnets are really separate. It looks at this like feeling of connection between the struggles of female writers through the centuries, even to today, to the speaker herself, um, the, the poet herself, who is writing about this. And yeah, I just thought this would be a nice poem to share because during the interview with Duck, they were talking about how the definition of classical theatre for them is, is quite broad. And it stretches to include writing from more contemporary times and styles that is set more than 100 years before. And they even welcome student writing now. So I think a lot of this challenges our ideas of what the classics are or what our relationship with the classics are. Uh, yeah, like... um. In, in Sonnets on Corsica, I feel that it shows that there's a lot of female writing and voices that have been excluded from the classics. And, and I find it intriguing to see contemporary writing that explores possible alternatives to the dominant male narrative in the past. Um, for instance, I recently wrote a review of The Handmaiden, um, which is a film adaptation of a neo-Victorian novel, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, which is a contemporary novel but set in Victorian times. Um, and it sort of looks at alternatives to, to the male narrative in the past, but it's written in the present. And I guess in dramatic staging, there's also bringing a modern context of framing to classical theatre or adapting classical works for in a, in a modern context. And I've also seen some gender-blind casting of classical plays in DST shows, as well as... Um, shows that frame them in different time periods. Um, and I think this is just something really fun to play with. I guess something that you have a lot more freedom to do in student theatre, but I guess a lot of like um, other um, like professional companies, they do that as well. Um, like I've seen Japanese adaptations of Shakespeare where they very much use like the physical body language um, of of traditional Japanese, like, no theatre, um, while using Shakespeare's text that is translated into Japanese. There's just a lot of, um, many, many ways that you can access classical 
text and it just brings across you can approach it in so many different ways yeah anyway <laughs> earlier i played uh, marina's song man's world which at times spoke from the point of view of mother nature with a kind of eco-feminist perspective because i feel she links nature to the marginalized female or queer people who have been unjustly treated and I think this kind of perspective is quite interesting in music. And the next song I'll be playing is Soulless Creatures by Aurora. That was Soulless Creatures by Aurora. I don't think it's explicitly stated, but to me it feels like the song's lyrics sound like it's coming from the point of view of having been exploited and hurt by someone who has no humanity or compassion. And that feels very much like it's speaking from something above humanity, like it's giving voice to Mother Nature, like from this sort of like divine point of view. And, and I find the song very touching because um, the feeling of hurt that it articulates is so personal and, and so like deeply emotional and subjective, but at the same time, it is so universal in that it can be a statement of the huge scale of cruelty and destruction that's going on in the world and yeah i just find i really like songs that kind of explore um very personal feelings within the context of this um rather depressing world that we live in um yeah i really like that song We have come to the end of the art show this week. It's been Lim. You've heard a lot of my voice this week and hopefully I can bring you more people next week. The arts team is quite busy preparing some drama projects and I'm really excited to bring them to you soon. We will also be having a slot for Paul's Christmas special to round up what we've been doing this term, so do look out for that next week. As usual, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. If you've missed any of it and would like to catch up, it should be available on Paul's on-demand platforms either tomorrow or the day after. We are always looking for people to come on our show to discuss arts-related subjects, so no matter what you would like to talk about, you can drop us a message on our Instagram at purple underscore radio underscore arts and follow us to stay updated. Or you can also email me at arts at purpleradio.co.uk. Um, the email address finally works and I'm so excited about that, so like, send me some emails. Um, tune in at the same time next week to discover more exciting content. See you! Purple Radio Podcasts Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.